0: At the uh, at the beginning of our worship services, our worship gatherings every week, um, we open with. Uh, it says it even in the in the bulletin. We open with what's what I call an apostolic greeting followed by a call to worship. And the apostolic greeting is, is simply that. It's, it's simply a, a greeting that an apostle wrote in one of the letters. So this morning I got up right after the kids sang, and they did a great job, by the way. Thank you, Jan and the others who helped with that. Um, mostly thanks to the kids. They did a great job. But I got up this morning right after they... Um, we're done, and, and, and I said, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I was quoting Second John, verse 2. That's what that greeting is. John wrote that greeting in his letter. Um, following that, I almost always read a, a passage of Scripture, usually a, a psalm of praise, And as a church, we do this in order to really to call each other to set everything else aside. Set aside every conversation, every distraction, set down every donut and cup of coffee and focus our own minds on worshiping our God. This week, we specifically remember Specifically worship God for the incarnation, the in the flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This week, as we look at Christmas in a couple of days, this week is when we remember specifically with joy, the Messiah, who who, who put on flesh, who walked on these uh, streets there in the promised land, who walked in the dirt, who lived a life of perfect obedience to his father, the father. This is when we remember as the the hymn says that he was born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. One of the most important things to remember as we celebrate Christmas this week is that this was an actual event that happened in human history. And it reads like that in Luke chapter 2 that I, I read earlier, doesn't it? It reads like, like, a, like an actual historical account. Luke 2, that passage, is probably the most familiar of the, the incarnation passages And even those first three verses there of Luke chapter 2 have a ring of, of accuracy about them. When Luke writes, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Luke is like a journalist reporting a story. It rings true. Luke was a doctor, and he was, he was meticulously detailed. He researched for his writing. And so listen to Luke chapter 2, uh, just verses 4 to 7 one more time. Let me read this again. Luke 2, 4. And Joseph also went up uh, from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem That's what Luke did. He, he interviewed everyone that he could, and then he wrote down the history of Jesus' life. This is not a myth. This is truth. The birth of Jesus was an actual event in human history. What we are reading here is not the beginning of some new, mystical, mysterious religion. It truly is the story of God redeeming His people just as he said he would. He said he would redeem his people. He said it in many places, for example, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 37, just listen to verses 23 to 28, says this, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then all the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore, God says. See, God is faithful. And when he says he will do something, he will do it. It's as simple as that. Probably will not be done in your time frame. Most often it's not. I know it usually isn't done in my time frame. But God is faithful. One of the greatest needs for humanity is salvation. It is deliverance. It is redemption. And as you read through the Old Testament... You see people who are spiraling out of control. God's people. They're trapped in sin and and in oppression. They need deliverance. And God has been telling his people for centuries. He has been telling them that he was going to send a redeemer. He was going to send a, a messiah who would deliver them. In fact... Over 700 years before the events that we just read in Luke chapter 2, 700 years before Jesus was actually born, God even told his people where he was going to come from, in which town he was going to be born. And so we're going to look at one verse this morning, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you're not familiar with Micah, uh, he was an Old Testament prophet. Uh, One of what we now call the minor prophets. Basically, that just means that he wrote a small book. Um, And the theme of his writing is really one of judgment and forgiveness. The people of Israel, God's people, are drifting away from God and Micah is calling them back. Or maybe I should say, God is calling them back through Micah. It's in the midst of this that we read a prophecy... Um, a prophecy of the birthplace of, the, of their coming Messiah. And again, I, this is written over 700 years before Jesus was born. And so I want to read just this one verse. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Let's just stop and pray one more time. Lord, as we look at this truth, I pray that you would help us to understand. Father, we are a needy people, and you have what we need. And so I pray that you would give us what we need today from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The, um, The Christmas celebration as we know it today... Um, apart from the, maybe the extreme commercialization of Christmas over the last 50 years or so, uh, the Christmas celebration that we know today is really largely the, the product of Victorian England. So think of Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, I think I've mentioned him before, he was nine years old when Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. Uh, when it was published, at least. And, And he said this about the Christmas holiday. He said, Certainly, we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it, whether it be said or sung in Latin or in English. And secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant whatever for observing any day as the birthplace or birthday of the Savior. And consequently... Its observance is a superstition, because it is not of divine authority. But hang on, because it gets even worse. He also said, many would not consider that they kept Christmas in a proper manner if they did not verge on gluttony and drunkenness. And he said, if there be any day in the year of which we we may be pretty sure that it is not the day in which the Savior is born, it's the 25th of December. But Charles Spurgeon also loved Christmas. He preached at least 12 sermons on on Christmas, on the incarnation of Christ, and he said this, I wish there were 20 Christmas days in the year. And all the children said amen. I wish there were 20 Christmas days in the year because, he said, the birth of Christ should be the subject of supreme joy. And in a sermon that he preached on the On the evening of Christmas Eve, in the year 1854, on on the passage Luke chapter 2, verse 15, he said this. He said to his church, So beloved, let us now go unto Bethlehem as it was. Let us, if possible, bring the wondrous story of that child born, that son given, down to our own times. Imagine the event to be occurring just now. I will try to paint the picture for you with vivid colors that you may apprehend afresh the great truth and be impressed as you ought to be with the facts concerning the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's go to Bethlehem together this morning as we see this little town in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There are three and and really kind of four questions that we can ask in this passage about Jesus. The fourth one's not really a question. I'll just say that right now. But let's take a look at this. And I'm going to try to tie this into a couple of the songs that we've sung uh, even this morning. The first question is this, where did he come to? the song that we didn't sing today but that we often do is O little town of Bethlehem. But you O Bethlehem Ephratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, have you ever wondered why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Was there something so special about this small town? Why not Jerusalem, the the capital of the nation of Israel, the the holy city, the, the home of the temple? Why not even Rome? the capital of the, of the Roman Empire. In Luke chapter 2, when, it, when he says the whole world went to be registered, he, he means all of the Roman Empire, which was practically the whole world then. Why was Jesus not born in Rome, the capital city? Imagine the influence that Jesus could have had for God's people in that great city of Rome. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a town too little this verse says, to be, to be counted among the clans of Judah, a town not unlike Logansville. But God did not choose Bethlehem at random. It, it was a town with a, with a rich history. So way back in Genesis, way back at the beginning of the, of the foundation of the nation of Israel, when Israel was really just still a family, in fact, it was a very small family, Bethlehem was the place that Jacob's wife, Rachel, would die and her son, Benjamin, would be born. He would go on to be, Benjamin would go on to be the father of the tribe of Benjamin. And so just listen to Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 to 20. It says this, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some different distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day, Genesis 36 says. As she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, B-E-N hyphen O-N-I, Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Bethlehem was a town of sorrow for this new mother. Bethlehem was a town of sorrow for mothers. It was against Bethlehem that Herod would issue his infamous decree Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. You probably remember this story. Matthew two sixteen. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rachel's sorrow filled Bethlehem centuries later. And the joy that Mary felt at the birth of her son in Bethlehem would would turn to grief when she saw him die on the cross. But there's more. There's more about Bethlehem. If you have ever read the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, I would encourage you to sit and read it sometimes, just four chapters long. Ruth is significant, and especially to this passage and what we're looking at today, because it was at Bethlehem that Ruth followed Naomi. Naomi. Naomi had lost her husband. She had lost both sons, one of whom was Ruth's own husband. Naomi, when she returned to her hometown of Bethlehem, said, Don't call me Naomi anymore. From now on, call me Mara, which means bitter. Yet it was also at Bethlehem that Ruth was redeemed by Boaz. It was at Bethlehem that Ruth bore a child, Obed. It was at Bethlehem that that Naomi's bitterness at losing everything that she loved was turned to joy in seeing her family delivered from extinction. It was at Bethlehem that Obed became the father of Jesse. It was at Bethlehem that Jesse became the father of David, who became king. What about Bethlehem's name? It means house of bread. That's what it means, house of bread. And bread and water are sort of the the base elements of food that we need to survive, right? Um, So where do we go for bread? Where do we go for life to survive? Where do we go, let's ask it this way, where do we go for spiritual life? If we are honest, we could admit that many Christians actually believe, practically, in real life, they believe that if they're just good enough, they will get into heaven. If we follow the rules, if we follow God's laws, He will let us into heaven. But we can't be good enough. We can't follow God's laws. We can't, if I put it this way, we can't go back to Mount Sinai, right, where the law was given. So think about this. Let's put kind of all these stories together of the Old Testament and the New. The manna that God's people received from heaven in the wilderness of Sinai That bread that they received from God was only temporary. It only lasted for a day. We can't go to Sinai for the bread of life. We can't go to the law for the bread of life. Because the bread there was only temporary. They had to keep returning to it. Listen, spiritually, God's people needed to keep returning to the law. They needed to keep returning to Sinai for spiritual life. The law just pointed out their depravity, their sinfulness. What if we turn to the world? What if we turn to our own ways, our own appetites? What did Jesus say when he was tempted to turn stones into bread? He said, man cannot live by bread alone. You will never be satisfied by trying to fill your appetites. It will never end. There's always one more thing You always need another meal. There's always just one more dollar to earn. There's always a nicer house that you could buy, a newer car, a better job, a prettier wife, a handsomer husband, praise, envy from others. There's always something else. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Bethlehem is where you must turn, to the house of bread. Life comes from Christ alone. But the name Bethlehem actually also has another meaning. The other meaning is, it also means is house of war. And if Jesus is not the bread of your life, then we have to watch out because he said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And yet our prayer is with Charles Wesley in the hymn, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Reconciled. The only way for that reconciliation to happen is to look to the bread of life. The only way for that reconciliation to happen is to look to Jesus Christ. Notice there in Micah 5.2, it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah which means fruitful. Ephrathah means fruitful or abundance. Jesus was born in the house of abundant bread or the house of abundant war. Jesus was born that you might have life and have it abundantly. Why Bethlehem? Why was this little town, which was so little among the clans of Judah, which was the tribe to which it belonged, why Bethlehem? We can say simply that Jesus always goes among the little ones. Have you thought of that? Jesus always goes among the little ones. It is to the least of these that he cares especially for. He's not born among royalty. He was. He wasn't born in Jerusalem in the religious royalty of the Jewish culture. He wasn't born in Rome in the, in the secular royalty of the Roman culture. He was born in a humble, simple little village in, named Bethlehem. Jesus always goes among the little ones. Think again of Ruth, a young Moabite widow with nothing going for her, whose own mother-in-law said, don't follow me. Don't come with me. She clung to her. Think of Samuel. Young boy serving the Lord in the temple. And yet he was called by God to lead his people and prepare them for a king. Think of David. That young shepherd boy tending his father's sheep. And God said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the king. A little shepherd boy out in the fields taking care of his dad's flocks. God always chooses the nobodies. Think of Moses. A baby doomed to death floating down the Nile River in a basket of reeds. God always chooses the nobodies. Think of yourself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, he, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were uh, of noble birth. These things are mostly true of us, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who were the great people of Logansville's history? Can you name the great people of Logansville's history or put your town in there? Who are the great people of West Liberty's history or of Cable's history? Where are they now? How long do you think that you will be remembered? 50 years? Maybe? 100? Probably not. You and I... We're the little ones. And if you have trusted in Christ, he has redeemed you and he has called you his own. He has said, they will be my people and I will be their God. So the second question that we need to ask as we look at this is where did he come to? Or The first was where did he come to? The second is where was he from? Where did he come to and and, and where was he from? This verse says, from you shall come forth for me. So Bethlehem, we've we've covered that. But really, where was Jesus from? Bethlehem is the place, is Bethlehem the place that Jesus originated? Is Bethlehem the place that Jesus originated? We would have to say no, because he was sent from God. He was sent from God to do God's bidding. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the fullness of time had come. All of history had led up to this moment in Luke chapter 2. All of history had led up to this moment that we celebrate 2,000-ish years later, all of history had led up to this, the moment of this child's birth. God had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would be an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would come and defeat sin and death. And in preparation for that, God chose Abraham, and he said to him in Genesis chapter 12, just the first three verses, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God chose for himself a people. A people who would be so numerous, God would tell Abraham a couple chapters later, that they would be like the stars of the, so- of the sky, like the sand of the seashore. They would be a great nation. And God was faithful. He provided for them. He provided for them even through famine. He brought them to Egypt. And they grew into a great nation. They grew so great, in fact, that the Egyptian pharaoh was afraid that they would rise up. And so he enslaved them. But God was faithful. And when his people cried to him for deliverance when they cried to him for uh, redemption, to be redeemed from their slavery, he gave them a deliverer. He gave them a savior in Moses who led his people, he led God's people to freedom from their slavery, led them toward the land, toward the land that God had showed to their father Abraham. Along the way, it wasn't easy for them. And they complained, as we would. And in the face of hunger, in the face of thirst, they forgot God's faithfulness. Instead, they remembered that even in their slavery, they used to have full crock pots. But the God who brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground could also provide bread and water for them. And he did. And he provided bread from heaven. He provided that, that manna that I mentioned a few minutes ago. He provided water from a rock. God was faithful. And he met his people at Mount Sinai. And he said to to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, the Lord called to him, to Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. The people essentially answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so he gave them the law. 623 laws. And he essentially said, if you do all of these things, if you obey all of my commandments, you will be a holy people. You will be set apart for me. And before Moses could get down off the mountain, the people were worshiping an idol, a golden calf. They were unfaithful to their redeemer. God had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and they bowed down to a golden calf. And yet God still brought them into the land. God still was faithful. And he had developed them into a great nation, as he had said he would. He had brought them into the promised land, but they were not fully obedient. They did not completely rid the land of all the evil that was already there. And they continually rejected their Redeemer to the point that they didn't want God to be their king anymore. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And yet he was faithful. And he continued to show them mercy. Even when again and again the people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and they turned away from him and turned to idols. And after their first king was rejected by God, he established David on the throne and he covenanted with David and he said to David in in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There will be an offspring of David, sent from God, who will be the son of God, who will reign from his throne forever. And when the time was right, when the fullness of time had come, 2,000-ish years ago, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Who sent Jesus Christ? God did. Jesus Christ came on behalf of God the Father. He said, he, he said to the people, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the word Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. He came to redeem his people. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Well, why did he come? He says, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. He came to set his people free. He came to deliver his people from oppression. Even though they've, They've not cried out for deliverance. But he didn't come just to lead his people into the desert. He came to be their king. He came to be their ruler. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Jesus fulfills the covenant that God made with David. This is why Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 starts with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, even in his humanity, was the literal heir of the throne of David. That's why those genealogies are important, by the way. They establish Jesus' legitimacy as a king. Jesus was born king. The moment that he was born, he was a king. The the Magi recognized this. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and, and have come to worship him. Jesus did not have to wait to inherit the throne. It was his, the very moment Mary gave birth to him. He came to be ruler in Israel, it says here in Micah 5.2. But some might say that he failed. He never sat on the throne. In fact, there was no throne. There was no monarchy at that time. There was no kingdom. Rome was ruling, and so this ruler must have been a waste. Because while he was despised and rejected by men, While he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, John chapter 1 says. It goes on to say, to as many who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That means if you believe in his name, if you have trusted in Christ's name, you have a right to be called a child of the king. You have a right to be called a child of the king. But now we can still sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Because we live in this tension of the uh, what we sometimes say, the already and the not yet. We live in the middle of his advents, the middle of Christ's comings. Today we celebrate the already. Today we celebrate the, the first advent, the first coming of Christ, that Jesus Christ came as king and he proclaimed a message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that that following the resurrection, God uh, seated Christ at his right hand on the throne. And as we long for the second coming of Christ, as we long for his second advent, as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the, the not yet, we long for the day when he will return and he will fully establish his kingdom. We wait for the moment that he will kill sin and destroy death and crush the serpent's head. We long for that day. When he came the first time, he didn't look like a king. And very few people recognized him. But When he returns, no one will mistake him for anything other than the king. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16 says this. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, as are crowns. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Jesus came from the Father, to do the will of the Father, to be the king over his people. And one more thing. This is the final question that's not a question. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. When we sing that, and we're going to in a minute, we are praying for Christ to return. For him to come and put to death once and for all the sin, the death, the brokenness, the suffering. We wait for that. And notice here, Micah 5.2, it also says that the, the king's origin is from old, from ancient days. Another way to say from ancient days might be to say from everlasting or from eternity. And the thing about eternity is this, it goes both ways. The thing about eternity is that it goes both ways. There will be no end to Jesus' reign. And so I have to plead with you, as Isaac Watts did in this hymn that we're about to sing, as he wrote this, let every heart prepare him room. This Christmas season, even right now as you celebrate the birth of the Messiah, as you gather with friends and family and have lots of cookies and things that you will resolve not to eat anymore in another week, as we do those things, as we unwrap presents, as we have a good time over these next weeks, as we celebrate the birth of our Messiah, prepare room in your heart for him. That means repent and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. The third verse of Joy to the World goes like this. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Our prayer is that you would have a merry Christmas, rejoicing in the joy of our Messiah. He comes to make blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Have a merry Christmas trusting in the Savior from the little town of Bethlehem. Pray with me. Father, as we rejoice in Christmas, I pray, Lord, I think my simple prayer today is that you would come quickly. We long for the end of broken families. We long for the end of sickness, death, We long for the end of suffering and struggle. And so, Lord, as we gather together over these next few days, I pray that we would not forget. My prayer for us as a church is that we would not forget, that we would not get so hung up in uh, in the celebration that we would forget what we are celebrating. It's not family, not our families. It's Jesus and his family. So Lord, we rejoice that we get to be a part of your family, that for those of us who have trusted in you, have repented and turned from our sins and turned to Christ, Lord, we get to be a a part of your family. We get to be, uh, we are adopted as your children. We rejoice in those things. And Lord, it is my prayer that that you would adopt more, that those who hear of these words today would trust in you, that we may sing one day, far as the curse is found. We pray these things in Jesus' name.